Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, and I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling and Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If anyone you or yourself or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's difficulties, please reach out to us. You can find out more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. So today's guest is a little bit different. His name is Nate Postweight, and he's going to share his recovery journey and how he worked through his trauma and his sex addiction to find some healing and some peace and to kind of move through his suffering and make it meaningful. So I really enjoyed the interview. I thought it was really good. And I just enjoyed hearing the perspective from not just necessarily another professional, but someone who kind of goes through the trenches of dealing with trauma, dealing with recovery and finding meaning in all of it, which can be really difficult and painful. So I really hope you guys enjoy this episode. I'd love to hear about what you think about it because I'm thinking of doing more of these episodes in the future. So let me know. You can go to the blog, theaddictedmind.com forward slash 47 and leave me a comment and let me know what you think. I would really appreciate it. So let's go ahead and um, start this episode. All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. Today, I have Nate Holstewaite. Nate, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, great, great job on my name. That's a mouthful for a lot of people. It, um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Nate Holstewaite, coming from, currently from Denver, Colorado, and just really excited to be able to share some of my story and the way that I began to recognize that sex addiction was a part of my life and just cover some of the taboo topics that I think people still aren't talking about 
and that's just being awesome. able to recognize. Yeah, that's that, great. Uh, and, there, there's a lot of issues. Yeah, and I'm, I'm great. It's great to have you on too, because um, you know I interview a lot of professionals who treat uh, different addictive issues, and I was excited to kind of have you on as we were kind of talking previously, just to be able to share your story of your recovery and your journey. So I'm also excited to have you on because I think you're right. I mean, a lot of these issues aren't talked openly about and a lot of people don't discuss them. So I'm excited that uh, you're coming on to, to share your, your journey. Well, thank you. Honored to be here. Awesome. So let's just kind of start at the beginning then. Sure. I, um, I would say I was in my early 20s when I began to hear the term sex addict, sex addiction. And this would have been, you know, 18 years ago. So at a time where there wasn't a lot of education, there wasn't a lot of understanding about what that meant. And I think that people viewed it to be a scapegoat topic for just bad behavior. Right, right. And that that induces just more shame. I, I grew up in a very religious environment. And so I was doing any and everything in my power to be more prayerful and more open to make this behavior go away. But I think around 23 or 24, I just saw myself really start to take risks sexually and with my body that started to show a lot of danger for my well-being. And I remember a specific time where I recognized having multiple encounters in a day and just the despair that would come afterwards and getting to a place that evening where I recognized for the first time, if there is such a thing as sex addiction, you are it. This is certainly a very real issue in your life right now. So you started to kind of realize, even in your 20s, something's not right here for me. I'm engaging in behavior that is risky. I don't want to do it, but I keep finding myself doing it. And that term sex addict or sex addiction kind of spoke to you like, wait a minute, maybe this is something I'm struggling with. Yeah, I think it was the extremes and the danger. When you go through the process of addiction, there are so many things like food and sex that are very necessary. And so it can be a little bit more confusing where you're looking and thinking, I understand that there's a healthy version of this in my life, but I can't find it anywhere. And if any uh, participation that I had with any type of sexual activity always brought about such tremendous shame, I knew that this was beyond just the religious piece. There was something else there of just this is not what this is supposed to look like or feel like. Okay. So tell me, tell me a little bit about the beginning. I mean, tell me a little bit about how this all started for you and why you think sex became compulsive for you. I am a huge believer in a lot of generational issues. I think that uh, things that aren't addressed are passed down. And I came from a family where there was just tremendous sexual dysfunction as far back as we can trace. But there was quite a bit of sexual abuse in my very early childhood. And then around puberty, there was a unfortunate chap of sexual abuse then as well. And I think that what that does is it removes the barriers and the structure 
of what healthy sexuality and exploration looks like. And it opens you up to have very limited capacity and boundaries of attaching yourself to an actual sexual experience because something's been taken from you that you're no longer addicted to. And again, I'm saying that as a 40-year-old, obviously at the time, I just thought I had this um, extreme sexual appetite that couldn't be satisfied. And I look back now and, and you just recognize that when that type of sexual abuse takes place, it really does rearrange the brain and the way that you function and the way that you crave connection and the way that you attach your sexuality to your abuse. And so much of the early addiction was me reenacting my abuse for sure. Right. So you found yourself compulsively engaging in behaviors that kind of mirrored your abuse and you started finding out that it was compulsive for you. I did. And and I think I would be able to have enough awareness to say, this really isn't about sex. There's another driving force behind this that I can't figure out, but this has very little to do with sex. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Right. And that's something I hear a lot working with sex addicts is they have that sense. This is more than just about being sexual. This is about something that is is bigger than just sex. This is something something else that's going on for me. Absolutely. So when did you start to kind of say, okay, I need to kind of unpack this. I need to get help. I mean, I think that's kind of the critical moment for a lot of addicts is they kind of realize I can't do this on my own. If I keep going this way, I'm going to destroy everything that's meaningful to me and I'm going to destroy my life and I'm probably going to end up dead. So where was that moment for you? That's a really profound statement and that that really does play into what I started to recognize even at 23 or 24, just knowing this cannot be my future. This is really scary. And I'm so glad that I'm speaking with another professional when I address this, because I'm sure that you've had so many clients that have come from a similar background. In a very unfortunate way, I continue to thought, I continue to seek out counsel within my faith system. Mm-hmm. And just not, he, he just was not equipped to deal with trauma or addiction. Right. And there's just, there's a lot of danger in applying faith, prayer, to addiction and things where your brain is actually altered from trauma. And I stayed in that system for seven years trying to undo much of this work. And not only can I say I didn't make any progress, but I lost those years and I suffered tremendously. I ended up having a nervous breakdown when I was around 30 years old. And I think that so much of that was my body and my soul were just at war desperate to integrate. And I could not pray enough. I could not capture enough of God or the Bible to undo this. And 
shortly after the nervous breakdown, I started studying trauma recovery and different types of therapy. And I found a treatment center that I went to and Duane, in that one week, they covered a solid five years of therapy. It was so profound to have these therapists who were fully equipped to deal with addiction and trauma and start to explain your humanity to you in a way that shows value. And I think too, they had such respect for the harm that had been done and why I was where I was. And that helped, that helped alleviate the shame and pull the shame back to say, okay, the the shame is totally unnecessary based on what has happened to me. My response in this addiction is very normal. And I'm hearing this for the first time. So that was, that was 10 years ago. That week changed my life and started a future of years and years and years of different therapy, but very profound and very helpful. So you were going, so you, in the beginning, you, you were seeking help, but that help actually in a way was hurting you more. It didn't really help you kind of understand how this trauma was playing out in your body and in your biology. And so here you were kind of trying to do the same thing and being feeling stuck. Stuck and then the, the addiction continued. And so I would spiral and I would have this binge with my addiction and then come back to my therapist with my hands open. And it, it always came back to you're either not connected to your heart or not praying enough or not surrendering enough. And it just, it did so much damage and continued to add just so much shame. Mm-hmm. I'm so thankful that I got the help that I got. And I think that that's why I've been so adamant about building a platform for people to get the appropriate help by a licensed, certified professional so that they understand when you're adding shame to what's already there, it's just unnecessary. And I, and I tell you, 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 you hear me say the word shame so much. It ruled my 20s. It ruled my life for years where until they was able to take a backseat, I couldn't actually address the addiction that was right in front of me. Right. That kind of reminds when you're talking about that kind of treatment and addiction treatment, addiction treatment is still in some ways fairly young in the medical field, if that makes sense. And it was, I mean, addiction was looked at as a moral failing. That's how Alcoholics Anonymous was kind of born is that the medical community didn't really, they didn't understand what was going on and said, well, you know, you got weak, weak willpower. You're, you're somehow broken. You're somehow flawed. If you really, really wanted to get better, you would have, and you're not. So it must be you. And then not understanding how our brain works and the biology of it and how our brain is literally hijacked by these addictive substances or addictive behaviors. And you become really powerless to them in a way. And then, yeah, it sounds like once somebody could validate that for you and understand that for you, it really helped you kind of take the next step in your healing. Right. I love that you use the word hijack. That's probably one of the most common terms that I use because to me, it's saying something that's very organic, natural, beautiful, and sacred was interrupted by something traumatic. And it took over and misplaced what was absolutely meant to be. 
And I, I use that term all the time. And we see that a lot in addiction, that trauma kind of comes out. And when people have that traumatic body reaction and don't know how to care for it or to shift it or change it, addiction becomes an easy way to try and change it, I guess, or at least change it in the moment so that you don't keep feeling that traumatic reaction over and over again. And yeah, you get stuck in it. Absolutely. Wow. So quite a, quite a big journey for you. So when you kind of went to this recovery facility and it sounds like they, for the first time you felt validated. I felt validated. I felt um, very safe. It felt like the guardrails, the boundaries were being put back in place for the first time. Right. And I think their ability to tackle the trauma for the first time, I started to address this specific trauma. And it, gosh, it was, it was life-changing in an instant. I also recognized this is only the beginning, and it certainly was. But I, I recognized that I have found the meat of what I was looking for. I found the solution and the key that was going to move me in a different direction. Right. Okay. So you kind of said, oh, wow, all of a sudden this makes sense. I understand it and I can kind of see a way out. So can you kind of talk about that way out, this, this, the shift in perspective that you, you had in that moment? Yeah. The way that I've explained it to people is I feel like the sexual abuse for me happened at five and six, seven, eight, 10, and 12. I explained to people that it's like my five-year-old and six-year-old and 10-year-old just said, thank you. Mm -hmm. That's what it was like. It was for the first time that they were saying, thank you so much for not leaving me here wrestling with this damage and this collision of pain and trauma. And it was reaching back into those places for the first time and and beginning to address those things and, and integrating myself enough to be able to say, I don't want continued harm. And sex addiction is a disassociation where I am saying, I do not want to be me right now. I don't know how to process or address these emotions and these feelings. Therefore, I'm going to go put myself in a risky situation where it's anonymous and just really detach from myself. Once I started to address the root of where all that pain was coming from, it started to shrink quickly. And I started to be able to recognize gosh, I just, the desire is not the same. There, there's just a different set of boundaries in place and an amount of self-care there that's very genuine to say, I don't recognize that harm as being good for me. That's not appropriate for who I've gone back and rescued. So I think that was a big part is just feeling like where it all started, started to have a voice for the first time and was able to identify what was really behind the sex addiction. So those, those younger parts of you finally had a, you could be compassionate to them. It sounds like you could kind of give them a voice and be able to, that younger part of you sounds like, yeah, they finally had a voice. They could, they could talk about the pain and the hurt and they didn't need to hide in that addictive process. Correct. And I want to make sure that everyone hears this. In the beginning of inner child therapy for me, I despised that victim. Child. Yeah. I was so harsh and repulsed. I held 
every part of that abuse. I held that child captive as being the reason that I could not be happy current day. Right. And it yeah. took quite the breakthrough for me to understand how inhumane that was to continue the shame process and how, how much that needed change. Definitely. It reminds me of, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, John Bradshaw's work and his, his, his book, and I think I linked it on the website as well, Healing the Shame That Binds You, and how when we have that, that early trauma and that shame that we can really punish ourselves and yeah, in, in a way, despise our inner child of who we are when we have all that shame. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so here you had, uh, when you finally got some support in a way that worked for you, you were able to have some compassion, it sounds like, for this part of you. Some compassion and some security, some answers, some completion. To it, It's like I was just in this, if you looked at the foundation of who I was and what I stood on, there were these massive gaps. And I felt like I just stood in those gaps for so long. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was standing on a solid foundation, very aware of what's really gone on and understanding the pieces to my story. Okay. So tell me a little bit, and you know, you, you had this moment and you were able to kind of finally feel like there's some direction there. So share a little bit about what comes next after that. I came home from the treatment center and I looked at my life. And at the time I was had a very successful career. I was the vice president of an organization at 28 years old. And, but I looked around at my life and I just thought, I put myself in positions where I can excel with success to overshadow how lonely I feel and how isolated I really am. Mm-hmm. And I got a taste of something so profound in that setting that when I came home, I looked around and just thought, I just don't, I don't like this life that I've built. I really don't. And um, I had been in, in at the time living in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'd been there for 10 years. And I just started my process of just saying, I just want to go explore. I just want to be away from this life that I built here and just see what I'm made of. And I also want to give myself a break. I want to step out of the position that I'm in the leadership role and just go explore. And I received this incredible job offer in Southern California to do consulting work. And it gave me the option to get to know myself for the first time. When I moved there, my intention was to find out what my hobbies were and figure out what I made of. I didn't want my phone ringing at night and on the weekends, and I didn't want to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And I wanted to just put everything to the side and just pause life. I felt like I had lost so many years. So I just wanted to pause and say, what does it look like to engage with yourself and continue to rebuild this foundation? Once I, once I got to California, I started to see some of the PTSD come back. And it was nowhere near as severe. I wasn't going to have another breakdown. But... That's when I recognized the work you did last fall was very profound, but it was only opening the door for you to really push through on this journey. And that's when I started EMDR therapy. Okay. So you kind of realized like that was just the beginning. And I think a lot of people in recovery 
when they kind of start that journey, have that experience there. In some ways we look for that, like, okay, once I get the knowledge and I figure it out, then I'm going to be okay. And then we get the knowledge and we figure it out and we go, oh my gosh, there's more journey here to do. <laughs> there's, it's not the end right now. I got to keep going. Right. And I don't, I think that experience is pretty common in people who, you know, kind of dig into their recovery and say, okay, I got to, I got to invest in this change process. Well, that, and I think too, to just trust that regardless of what you've learned up until that current day, your life also evolves when you then go through, you're, you're then married or you're going through a different transition. What you've learned so far doesn't catch up to how your life continues to evolve. And I, I look at it as, I've got friends who say, oh yeah, Nate's a life learner. And they laugh because I love therapy. I love any kind of support system, any type of self-reflection or growth. I'm, I'm committed to that because it's right. uncovered so much beauty in how we're all made. And I, I doubt that I'll ever not be in therapy on a weekly basis. Right. And, and that's hard to getting past that shame to realize there is value in you especially when you're feeling tremendous amount of shame, it definitely helps you begin to, to see that. And, and also you had said something earlier, I think I'd like to comment on it, just that when a lot of people start this recovery process, you said, I, gotta, I had to go find out what my hobbies were. I, I think when we're kind of living in that shame bubble, we really don't know ourselves because we're too afraid to be ourselves, you know, if that makes sense, because the shame is so overwhelming that it's hard for us to kind of really know, know ourselves, if that makes sense. So it sounds like that kind of that process was happening for you as well. Yeah, I think that I defaulted to put on a mask, whatever mask was available. And I grew up in a, a home, we were uh, very poor. And I got my first time job at 14, first full time job at 14 in the summers between school. And I knew how to work and I knew how to work hard. And so that became my focus that felt safe and, and enough of a buffer to say, nothing's wrong here. You're fine. Look how great this is going. Surely it can't be as bad as what you think. But what happens is you spend all of the time manifesting this mask and this performance while you're losing more time. And then you're still not able to connect with the, the beautiful moments of sitting in your pain and trusting yourself to really expose your heart and what's there. Yeah, so true. Well said. So tell me a little bit about your journey now. So you you said you had gone to EMDR and you had done a lot of that trauma work. Tell me a little bit where you're at now. Sure. Started EMDR, I think eight years ago. And strictly because of travel constraints. I did intensives. So I would go for eight hours a day, three or four days in a row, only because I had connections back in Tennessee that just made more sense for me to have a safe place to stay at night with friends, just a lot of familiarity. And so I would go and do the intensives. And I ended up doing nine intensives um, over the course of, I think, six years. And it just, man, after my first round, I started to recognize that I was laughing more. I felt better. And, and I would watch circumstances happen in front of me and recognize, man, a year ago, this would really rile you up. You would really have a, this. The, the EMDR, two years ago, I sat with my therapist and he, I just shared with him that I felt that I was done with EMDR. 
for the time. And I felt like we had gone as far as we could go. We had this incredible two-hour session of just closing out and sharing what we both remember and the way that things played out. And so I've been done with the trauma work for about uh, two years. And last year, I just um, got to a place where my career was at its pinnacle and it was incredible, but I just was starting to feel a tug of recognizing that my life was starting to reappear in a way that took a lot of performance and written the mask again. And through the course of the year, while this success is imploding around me, I started making a plan of what I really wanted to do. And what I really wanted to do was travel and share my story. And I can't tell you how powerful it's been to give myself the space the two years after the trauma therapy ended, remaining in therapy on a weekly basis. But just having that time for me while planning this process of what does it look like for you to share your story while maintaining tremendous self-care for yourself and making sure that the self-care comes first. And so a few months ago, I left my career after 13 years in the real estate industry and uh, launched a blog and podcast to talk about a lot of these issues that I feel like people aren't talking about. And it's giving me a lifeline that I could never have imagined. It has been incredibly gratifying. But even within that, I have to constantly look look and say, are you keeping your self-care? Are you keeping your health as the number one priority as you pursue this and share this? And doing okay so far, um, but it's just been an amazing, amazing experience to hear other people's stories that have come in and just see how many people are suffering and don't have the right words and definitions for what they're going through. It's been incredibly rewarding. Wow. And I love to see that when people kind of come through the other side of the addiction and and put in all that work. And, And I think anybody who's in recovery knows there's no quick fixes here and that it does take uh, work to get that recovery. And that's definitely evident in your story is that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of work that went into your own healing, but it's so wonderful to, to hear that now you're at that space where you want others to experience the same healing that you've had. And, um, and I think that's such a wonderful thing about recovery is like, we want to share it and we want other people to have some of the same experiences that we've had, even though it's difficult at times and painful and hard and not always easy, but um, it is rewarding. So, so tell me a little bit about your podcast and what you're doing and, and how, how this is your own, I guess, turned your own suffering into meaning. Yeah, that's a great statement. The name is The Other Side of Saved. The blog started uh, four weeks ago. I released the first three on July 17th. And then I've done three more episodes since. And then the podcast actually launches August the 15th. And the podcast is basically me reading the blog, but just doing live updates at the beginning to share uh, some of the emails I've received from other readers and people who give me permission to share their stories. And it's really the the hunger and desire is to help people connect. The, The primary topics are male sexual abuse, working through PTSD, through EMDR, 
Um, I talk a lot about sexuality, homosexuality within the religious realm, and just anyone who's been harmed by any type of faith system. And just how important it is to know you know that you're a human being with a brain that has been affected by certain things. And I think that those topics, for some reason, are still wildly unpopular and not being discussed in a way that just says, guys, this is humanity. It's not, it's not a secret. There's no shame here. These are things that need to be discussed. And, you know, Dwayne, I, I suffered quietly for so long. And I feel like I can't imagine how many 12 or 13 year old boys right now have experienced the same type of abuse that I've experienced. And just like me, think that they caused that. Right. They think that yeah. that was their fault. If, if anything, I want to interrupt people who are not able to put the appropriate definitions and meaning around any type of addictive behavior or trauma that they're experiencing and really help people connect with a story where they can see, I have work to do and I'm willing to do it because it's worth it and I'm worth it. Oh, that's a great, that's a great message. And Nate, I'm going to link all of your, uh, your website onto theaddictedmind.com and put it all there so people can find it and get this information if they want to know more. What would be, as, as kind of a closing statement, what would you want to tell anybody out there who's listening right now? You know, I would say a big theme that I'm seeing right now is how dating apps have become such a prevalent part of our culture. Uh, pornography has become such a prevalent part of our culture. And it's almost become the norm to have this experience of being really numb to, oh, well, this is just part of it. Right. And I just want to challenge people to just really look at the decisions and behaviors that are there and saying, do you feel satisfied? Do you feel whole? Do you feel loved? Do you feel sacred? And just really pay attention to what would it look like for you to pursue a life where from the core of who you are, you feel extremely validated because you're in touch with every part of yourself. Right. And that, that does take work. And that's just not something our culture is really presenting right now. But there's nothing more satisfying than that than just knowing who you are. I would agree. I would definitely agree with that. And, and definitely, uh, sometimes it can be a tough journey to get to know who we are but encourage people to kind of find that and, and work through that and, and find the rewards that come with that. So mm-hmm. Nate, thank you so much for coming on to The Addicted Mind and sharing your time and your wisdom with all of my listeners. Once again, I'm gonna put your website up on uh, theaddictedmind.com so people can find out more information about you. And um, anything else you'd wanna say? That's it, Dwayne. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nate. You take care. All right, everybody, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. You can find all the show notes at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 47. I will link to all of Nate's website and uh, his upcoming podcast as well there. So you can check it out. Once again, if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help. And I really appreciate it. Peace, everybody. Have a wonderful day and I will see you next week.
I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.